Well, Carl, um, first I want to, before we move on to some of the later years here with some of the fun things that you did, I want to say something. And I want to say this publicly. The group of people that you named uh, when you, that formed the vice president core group of the NHRA, I have to say thank you to you and to all of them, because what you guys did throughout the 80s and into the 90s was some of the most stellar drag racing that there has ever been. And I grew up as a young man, a teenager, and into adulthood through that period of drag racing. And I have to tell you, I never missed a broadcast of drag racing or the opportunity to go to one of those drag races because uh, just the showmanship of those events was incredible. And I want to thank you. And I know I've thanked Steve Gibbs for this already and all of you for what you did for the sport through that period, because it, it's unparalleled in my opinion, in, in motorsports, what you guys did there. And thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that more than you could ever possibly know. And, and it was a magical time at NHRA. It really was. Um, yeah, even after Wally Parks started stepping back from any form of day-to-day management, he had a knack for identifying people with the skills that would benefit the NHRA and drag racing. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, I had the honor of working with some of the finest people that I've ever known, all with the same focus, which was let's make NHRA championship drag racing everything it can possibly be. And uh, those those were wonderful years. Those were magical years. And and one other person that I I would like to mention in this too is the guy who was always out there on the front line in Buster Couch, because I don't think there was ever a greater promoter of the sport than Buster Couch as far as public appearance-wise. The, the guy was just incredible for what he did for the sport. You're right about all of that, but my enduring recollection of Buster Couch will be don't ever try to screw with him on the starting line. <laughs> Isn't don't that go the- there. Don't try to argue with him. Don't try to disagree with him. Certainly don't try to screw with him. <laughs> you know, if you're not going up there and staging properly and, and you're playing games or whatever, sooner or later, it's going to be hell to pay. And it's going to come <laughs> in the form of Buster Couch. And you could tell, I mean, when you're in a race car and the thing's running and there's nitro fumes everywhere and you're gagging to breathe and your eyes are watering and you're trying to get up to the stage and you look at Buster and he's got a look on his face. You know exactly what he's thinking. <laughs> exactly. And you know, and you know, if he's smiling, you're doing good. And if he's not smiling and his eyes are kind of squinting, you better shape up real quick. So, Buster, Buster's not real happy about something. As you can tell by the shirt hanging behind me, Buster is he's one of my heroes. I the, the I I don't know why, but I always had a fascination watching those drag races. My eyes were always focused on Buster because you just never knew what was gonna happen. Well, and he had the ability to surround himself with a crew that you know fell in the line, marched to his orders, believed in everything, and Mike. Couch's son being right at the head of that list. Yeah. Uh, just great guys spending time for hardly any compensation at all in, in the mouth of the tiger for uh, Christ's sakes on the starting line. If anybody hasn't ever been to the starting line with a couple of fuel dragsters black or a couple of jet cars or whatever, you have no idea 
the environment that they survive in. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And to do it all day, every day for days on end, to have that kind of dedication is, is hard for most people to even fathom, myself included. And, and I'm going to tell you one quick Buster Couch story. You know? By all means. We always try to stay on Buster's good side for obvious reasons. You know, he, I will tell you straight up, Buster Couch never influenced the outcome of a race. But if he didn't like what was going on, he would be having a word with you later on. And there, there would be a price to pay in some form or another, even if it was just having him give you that look, you know. So we always got along great with Buster. And, and I never had any issues with Buster on the starting line at all. <laughs> but we were in Gainesville, Florida at a Holiday Inn during the Gator Nationals. And, and Kool and I were on up on the second floor. In typical Holiday Inn, there's the front office with the restaurant, and then there's motel on three sides, and the pool is in the middle. And they're all almost identical. I mean, you can almost wake up and forget which holiday you're in, you know. They're all two-story. And so anyway, we're on the second story overlooking the pool on the inside, and Buster Couch is on the first floor kind of adjacent to us, you know, at a 90-degree angle. We know which room he's in because we've seen him going in and out of it. Well, Buster's wife used to hold prayer services in their room from time to time. This is probably before Racers for Christ and all of that. She was very religious and a wonderful woman, just, you know, great people. And uh, so evidently, unbeknownst to us, they were having a prayer meeting in there. And Buster was there. He wasn't a big prayer guy for say per se but he was in the room and, and obviously supported what was going on there and whatever but because of the meeting and people kind of coming and going the door to their room was open well mike cool loved m80s he was an m80 freak as a lot of drag racers were and he had acquired something called a wrist rocket and i've told this story before so some people might be familiar with it but a wrist rocket was a slingshot, but I mean, it was a top fuel slingshot. It had a big rubber band and it had an aluminum frame that you wrapped your, under your arms so you could aim it really well. And the drill was, MA, you know, Mike Cool, take an M80, put it in there with the fuse sticking up, he'd pull the thing back and have somebody light the fuse and then, you know, he'd fire it off at whatever. And he would fire it at anything and everything. He's, there were times when I was very concerned about some of his targets, but as it turns out, I don't think anybody was ever seriously injured, <laughs> but he got the bright idea. And I'm going to be honest with you. Mike cool drank a lot of beer. <laughs> he drank a lot of beer. He, he drank more beer than almost anybody I knew. And there were reasons for it that went beyond his, his, his love of the taste of beer. He had some medical conditions that made it difficult for him to digest food and, he pretty much lived on beer because he couldn't get a meal down and he could get a glass of milk down. And, but, you know, we'd go to a restaurant and he'd start to eat something and he'd stop after about three forkfuls. And, so, you know, he had something called a herniated esophagus and uh. it would stop food right here. It just wouldn't go down, you know, beer on the other hand, being liquid <laughs> would go right on down and evidently he had enough nutrients in it that he pretty much kept, cool alive at that time so he pretty much would start drinking beer for breakfast and then lunch and dinner and then for the party afterwards 
I, he was not a raging alcoholic, and but because he drank a lot of beer, he didn't get fall down drunk like people would that would consume that quantity of beer. And I'm not disparaging Cool, because he eventually realized what was happening. He had surgery, fixed his herniated esophagus, and he never drank a drop of alcohol from that time on. But at that time, that's how he survived. And so there was always beer around. And by the time this particular thing was about to happen, it was late evening, right around sunset. Everybody was liquored up pretty good. And Mike Cool decided it would be a good idea to see if he could fire an M80 into the doorway of Buster Couch's room. <laughs> now, like the mortar incident, I said right away, this is not a good idea. This is a bad idea. This should not be done. We don't want to go there. And like I said before, anybody that knows Mike Cool, you you know, once you make up his mind on something, you're not going to talk him out of it. It's just not going to happen. So forget about even, you know, after you've made the initial effort, I don't think this is a good idea. You might as well just walk away because it's going to happen. <laughs> so sure enough, he loads up an M80, pulls it back. He cons somebody into light the fuse. He fires it over the swimming pool. It goes down. It hits the deck of the swimming pool, hits the door of Buster Couch's room, and bounces into the room and goes off. Oh, gee. <laughs> and he's doing this all from, you know, from outside our room on the railing. And I told Cool, as soon as I saw it go in the room, I said, get your ass in here. <laughs> dragged him in and slammed the door and, and we pulled the curtains and I'm peeking through the curtains and here comes Buster Couch out of the room and he is pissed. <laughs> he is furious and right behind them are all these prayer people who are stunned of course and I'm thinking I'm, I'm pretty sure this is not going to end well at all and uh, I'm watching as Buster is talking to some people by the pool and after a short period of time they're all pointing up <laughs> at our room <laughs> and i thought you know this may be a day that we live to room because i this is not a good thing to piss off somebody like buster couch to start with but to piss him off the way we did and i say we only because i was an innocent bystander of course to make a long story short Nothing happened that evening because we never left the room. That was it. We never bothered to go out because we knew there'd be hell to pay. And evidently by all of the next day and whatever, his flaring temper had settled down to some degree. I don't think he ever knew absolutely for sure who did it. Because I'm pretty convinced that if he did, they would end up badly bruised and, and, and <laughs> perhaps much worse if you know, I mean, we got we slid by that one. And and I learned that when Mike Poole suggests something like that in the future, leave immediately and don't come back for a very long time. God, you know, the the pyrotechnic stories that I that I have been gathering around drag racing just floor me. Steve Gibbs told me about what blowing up a giant bucket of potato salad in the hotel parking lot with a bunch of M80s. <laughs> Tuckwilla, Washington. Yeah. Oh man. Never forget it. 
<laughs> oh, you were there for that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It was the NHRA headquarters hotel. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I, uh, Gibbs, Gibbs had a thing called the big deal. Anytime that we would conclude a drag race and nobody went to the hospital and everything, there were no controversies or in other words, it was a successful conclusion to a national event. He would take something called the big deal. What the big deal was, was a string of firecrackers. And it was probably 15 feet long at least. <laughs> And, and it had firecrackers on both sides of the fuse going all the way down. And at the end was a big ball of firecrackers. So he'd set it off, on, you know, he'd hang it from the tree or usually from the timing tower, or, you know, a bridge crossover in the staging lanes or something, you know, where you could get it that far off the ground and then wait until there were kind of a lot of people around unsuspecting of what was about to happen. <laughs> he'd go up and he'd light this thing off and it'd blah, 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 all these firecrackers all the way down until it got to the end and, I mean, this big and red paper flying everywhere. And I, you know, and that was a standard deal at every NHRA race. So I'd like to say maybe that was the extent of Steve Gibbs pyrotechnic exploits, but it was far from it. And we probably should leave it at that. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> pyrotechnics aside, um, you're out of the NHRA. <laughs> um, you did a few things after that, but before we get into your salt racing, I, I need to know about deep sea fishing because I, I absolutely know nothing about it, but I see that, uh, Herm, Herm Peterson ran barbecue charters. Uh, I saw Daryl Woods has got big fishing, had big fishing aspirations. What, is this another drag racer thing, or is this just a small group of people like that like the deep sea fishing? I, I think for Southern Californians who have traditionally had physical access to deep sea fishing, there were actually quite a few drag racers that were into it. <clears throat> and I suspect, like myself, fishing preceded drag racing. Okay. Uh, most avid deep sea fishermen started when they were very young. In my case, about the time that I graduated from diapers to pants, my father was an avid fisherman. And it wasn't just deep sea. It was lakes and streams. And if we went on vacation and there was no lake or stream or ocean nearby, he'd fill the tub in the motel room with water and fish in the tub. You know, might even <laughs> resort to fishing in the toilet if there was no tub. I mean, he was that was his aspiration for spare time. He just loved fishing and. I inherited that gene. My brother didn't, which is very typical of my brother and I. We're nothing alike, really. Uh, but but I, I inherited it to the point that he had taken me trout fishing and crappy fishing and all of that many times. But the one time he took me on a boat out into the Pacific Ocean, out of the port of Los Angeles in San Pedro, uh, to a place called the Horseshoe Kelp. And we started catching barracuda and yellowtail, <clears throat> we were using bait, live bait, which is the way that most Southern California offshore fishing is done. Live anchovies and sardines. The bait was bigger than most of the fish I had ever caught, you know? <laughs> so to use it to catch something way bigger and to be on a boat out on the ocean 
and the galleys fired up, you know, frying boat burgers. I mean, I, shit, I, yeah, that was it. I don't think I ever went trout fishing after that. For me, fishing meant getting on a boat and going out in the ocean. Uh, and uh, over the years, <clears throat> I, I went probably 25 years with never setting foot on a sport fishing boat. And it's because I was either drag racing or working for the NHRA. And it just wasn't possible. You know, at that time, racing was not priority one. It was priority only. I mean, it was, it, it, it especially if you're doing it, it's 24 seven, it's everything. And it's all got to be pointed in that direction. So I, I mean, I grew up working as a deckhand <clears throat> on sport fishing boats out of Long Beach, San Pedro, and Rigondo Beach, California, every summer from the time I was 12 years old on and every spring and fall on the weekends, I'd work as a deckhand on sport fishing boats. Wow. That's how involved in it that I was. And uh, it was brutal. I mean, uh, a typical trip would leave the dock at like two o'clock in the morning, not get back till five or six the next afternoon. Wow. And then you got to scrub every inch of the boat and clean up the galley and and if it's a, a boat with overnight bunks you you got to make up the bunks and fold the, the change the pillowcases and fold the blankets and so i would rarely get home before eight or nine o'clock at night have a quick dinner take a bath or a shower and get a couple hours sleep and get up at one o'clock in the morning and do it all over again and i loved it i loved it i loved it i loved it and i did that until literally the day that i was inducted into the coast guard um so that passion was driven deeply into me very early on. And even though I abandoned it completely for 25 or 30 years in order to go drag racing, I started redabbling in it, you know, with a half day trip and then a three quarter day trip and then an all day and then an overnight. And, and I finally got into something they call long range, deep sea sport fishing, which is multi-day traveling hundreds of miles to get to the best catches. And in the process of doing that, I bumped into from time to time drag racers out of a clear blue sky. I'd get on a boat and I look around. There's Wes Cerny. My God, what the hell are you doing here? I, I've been doing this all my life, you know. And there was a guy from San Diego named Dominic Cardoza, avid long range deep sea sport fisherman, you know. Um, so anyway, I started doing that. And early on, it was one trip a day for five one trip a year for five days and then it was one trip a day for seven one trip a year for seven days and then it was a couple of long-range trips and then gosh, last year i did a 16-day trip in april an eight-day trip in june another eight-day trip in august and an 11-day trip in november wow because now that I am actually retired, I have the ability to do that. I have the time to do that. And I, and I have the drive to do that. I love being out on the ocean. Uh, and I'm going to continue to do that as long as I'm physically able to do it. Uh, over the years, uh, I was very fortunate that uh, people both at NHRA right at the very end and then my 19 years with the SFI Foundation, uh, when I say, hey, uh, I'd really like to do a couple of fishing trips this year, and it means I'm going to have to take maybe my vacation and maybe a couple of days that I would prefer to be uncompensated or whatever. They, you know, Arnie Coons, the president, would say, go fish it, you know. 
when you get back, you know, there'll be plenty of work waiting on your desk for you to catch up on. But I, as a result of that kind of an attitude, I was able to build on it and, and really get into it. And I've done multiple long range trips every day for since about probably, I think, 1996 or so. Wow. Well, <laughs> and, and I might add, that fortunately, due to my international drag racing involvement, I've ended up fishing all over the world. And some of my favorite fishing has been done in New Zealand, where I used to travel for a couple of weeks every year wow. uh, to a sport fishing trip there and fish some really exotic stuff, striped marlin, blue marlin, that kind of stuff. And, and it was beyond inexpensive because I'm fishing on my friend's boat who happened to be a drag racer, a guy named Garth Hogan, uh, probably New Zealand's premier ever drag racer. And he owned a 55 foot custom sport fisher. And uh, I'd go down there and we'd live on the boat for two weeks and travel all over uh, Northern New Zealand and off to a place called the Three Kings Islands, a couple hundred miles North of the North Island and catch beautiful exotic fish. And uh, you know, it's really, it's probably evolved as the thing that I would most prefer to do with whatever time I have left. So you've taken retired and gone fishing to the ultimate extreme is what you've done then. Yeah. <laughs> well, but after you left drag racing and the uh, NHRA, uh, you did some more racing, you and cool and uh, who was with you Bowman and, uh, who else was with you guys once salt racing for a little while then? Yeah, it was Mike Cool, Carl Olson, and Don Bunk, my, my old friend from Lodi. Did Daryl Woods, Woods help you out with that too? Was he, he was he was our ace crew member. Oh, was he? he? Okay. He was there from, from day one. And in all the things that Mike Cool and I ever did involving racing, and, and I was at his shop on a regular basis or whatever, Daryl was involved in all of it right from the very beginning from the cool and Olson front engine dragster in 1970. Okay. Uh, and so what happened was in 1967, I went to Bonneville for the first time. Uh, I was working at Transdapt at that time for Willie Garner and he was a Bonneville racer himself. And he had a lot of contacts at Bonneville and through SEMA, uh, I had become a, uh, close friend with a guy named Berkeley Sage, who just happened to be part of the management of the Southern California Timing Association and the Bonneville Nationals Association that ran the Bonneville Speed Weeks and other events on, on the salt flats. And so Willie arranged with Berkeley Sage to show me around everything. And I rented a camper that we slid into my Ford pickup truck and me and the guy that worked in the warehouse at Transdap, another drag racer, um, drove up to Bonneville and spent probably three or four days up there. And on one of those days, Berkeley Sage invited me to get into his car and we drove down to what at that time was called the seven mile, which was the timing traps seven miles from the starting line. And in those days you had to make a down run and it was seven miles long and then you shut off and then you turned around, had to make a return run in order to set a record. Um, and anyway, he took me down there and he parked his car less than a hundred feet from the course at the seven mile marker. And he, he had a radio with him and he said, all right, 
you're going to like this next run. Okay, I, I have very little idea of what's going on here, you know. And when you're at the seven mile, you can't see the starting line or anything even near it because of the curvature of the earth. Bonneville is a unique place where you can actually see the curvature of the earth. Yep. So you hear these cars starting and because of the time it takes for the sound to reach you, it's already happened, of course, kind of like drag racing, yeah. but modified by a, a huge factor. So anyway, I hear this car fire up. Doesn't sound that much different from many other cars. And then you hear it leave the starting line and it's picking up revs. And then you hear the driver shift and then and, and, and you still can't see the car. And then finally, a minute or so later, Berkeley Sage points and you can just see this little dot on the horizon. Oh, okay, there it is. And it's coming at us and it's... Whew, and that thing went by us so fast, I couldn't believe it. It was the Herda, Nap, and Mylodon streamliner. And it just went by us at 350 miles an hour. <laughs> I said to myself, self, before you die, you got to come back here and do that. <laughs> uh, and I put that in the back of my head. But... In the meantime, I'm still drag racing and getting more heavily involved in it all the time, and either on tour or having a job and racing, and there's just no time to go Bonneville racing, and I don't have the funds or means to do it anyway, So, but I would go up there from time to time to Speed Week and watch others run, and there were cars approaching and ultimately reaching and exceeding 400 miles an hour, internal combustion, piston-driven, wheel-driven cars. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just blown away. Well, I'll get to the point. Uh, in 1989, I met a girl at the SEMA show in Las Vegas named Kathy Fiastad. Kathy Fiastad's father was Roy Fiastad, who was the proprietor first of a company called Speed Products Engineering that built over 300 dragster and funny car chassis and in some cases complete cars morphed into uh, the hot rod business with a company called the deuce factory and had been a bonneville racer since the 1950s and it turned out that even when he was drag racing bonneville was really his his main priority and he was just in love with land speed racing and after i met Kathy, we dated a few times through 1989, and then we dated even more heavily in 1990 while I was flying all over the world and whatever, and we didn't spend a whole lot of time together, but the time we spent together was quality time, and eventually we decided that we were in love, and I invited her to marry me, and she agreed, and in 1990, uh, we got married. In fact, we got married on December 7th, 1990. Uh, I remember because it was just before the holidays. So for the holidays, we got together at her father's house down in Orange County. And I saw all of his Bonneville pictures of his car and whatever. And he'd been running up there forever. He had a modified roadster and he had a Firebird. They were both 200 mile an hour cars. And during dinner, I forget whether it was Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. It was one of those. He looked over at me and he said, How'd you like to drive my Bonneville car? Yeah, I, 
I think I'd like that, actually. I think I'd like that a lot, you know. And I'll tell you that ever since then, a lot of people have accused me of marrying Roy Fiesta's daughter just to get the ride in his race car. <laughs> I want to discount that theory right now. It's been proposed on numerous occasions, and the response is always the same. It didn't happen that way. I didn't plan it that way. It just kind of worked out that way, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we went up there um, the following year, and it was going to be an easy deal for me to set a record and get in the 200-mile-an-hour club. And it, it, like all things at Bonneville, it's never easy, and it didn't happen in 91 or 92 or 93. But we went back there in 1994 where the salt conditions were finally really good for the first time in a couple of years. And he had the car running really well. And we set the A-gas modified Roadster record at 234.276 miles an hour. And I was inducted into the Bonneville 200 mile an hour club. Wow. Something that I had dreamed about all the, all the way back to 1967, the first time I went up there. So that set the hook on Bonneville racing. And uh, Roy and I then, uh, along with another partner named Mike Maris, built a streamliner and and we ran that up there and I drove it and I went as fast as 266 in that. We built it to go 300 and it just never happened. And sometimes it was course conditions, sometimes it was engine problems. Uh, but like I say, nothing is ever really easy at Bonneville. And uh, eventually we agreed to sell that car and then I kind of remained dormant at Bonneville other than going up there. And he built other cars and raced with other people. And I'd always go up and Kathy and I would be on the crew. And we went to Bonneville every year and loved it. It's like drag racing, getting together with all the best people you ever knew and, and going fast and having, you know, every night was a party in somebody's room. And you know, it's just a, a marvelous thing that I fell in love with and, and, and remained in love with to this day. And I mentioned to Mike Cool on numerous occasions that, yeah, you know, if you ever went to Bonneville, cool. Like everybody else I know, you you catch salt fever and you'd be hooked. And I don't have any interest in that at all. You know, that's just a bunch of old guys and old cars, and and it's just not something that I find all that appealing. Okay, well, whatever you say, whatever you say. Well, finally, I think it was about 2011 or 2012. I talked him into flying up there, I'd pick him up in Salt Lake City and drive him over there and arrange for his hotel room and whatever. And he'd spend just a couple of days there just to see what it was like. And just as I had predicted, he saw what was going on there. And he ran into so many people that he had drag raced against that like so many of us morphed from drag racing into land speed racing because it only happens a few times a year so you're not having to work on the car every night and you don't have a bunch of rules to follow you can build pre pretty much no two vehicles alike if there are 400 vehicles at speed week there's no two alike and you're able to do the things that you love to do in drag racing but are prevented from doing because of the rules uh, and trying to keep everything equal and all of that and mike got sucked into that vortex. And when I suggested to him that we look for a car or build a car or whatever, he said, you find a car, you provide me with a car, I'll build an engine, we'll go Bonneville racing. And so I said, okay. And we looked at a bunch of different cars. We flew up to Northern California and looked at a couple of streamliners and 
the deals just weren't right. And uh, finally, a friend of mine made me aware of a car, a modified rear engine, modified roadster that was for sale, quality car. The owner was just aging out. He was in his 70s. He'd been racing at Bonneville since the 50s. And he'd built on any number of cars. And this was a car he'd had some trouble with. He'd run some exotic engines, a Ford turbocharged engine that blew up, caught on fire. And he was just over it. And he hadn't put the car up for sale yet, but his friend got the feeling that he was ready to do so. And he knew I was looking for a car. So he called me and put me in touch with Harry Hoffman Sr. And Harry said, gee, I, I, the car's not up for sale, but you know, what are you willing to pay for it or whatever? And it was less engine and it, there was some damage to it from the fire and whatever. And we negotiated a price and we consummated a deal that night on the phone. And I made arrangements to uh, go up to where he was living in Northern California and pick it up and drag it back to cool, classic enterprises in Santa Ana and unload it in the shop and get to work. And we worked on it all of the rest of 2011, all of 2012, and we're finally ready to take it up there and run for the first time in 2013. It was a rear engine modified roadster with a custom chassis uh, that uh, Cool Cool had an engine at his shop underneath the workbench. And it had been an engine that belonged to Tom McEwen when he was racing funny cars. And he had gone from one engine block provider to another. I pink to Mylodon or he'd made some kind of a change and he had this cast aluminum water block 426 Hemi engine with a half inch stroker that he sold to Cool for next to nothing. And Cool put it in the shop and never, you know, put a tarp over it and never even looked at it for 20 years, maybe longer. I don't know. But he said, I think that thing would be perfect. You know, it obviously won't fit in the car, which was built for a small block Chevy or a, or a Ford Wedge. Uh, but, you know, we know people that can fix that and replace the frame rails to accept the fan. So we went to work on it and we did it and, and ended up with what was referred to as an A-blown fuel rear engine modified roadster. And we took it up there in 2013. And uh, I had not raced so long that in land speed racing, if you go three years without making a run, you have to upgrade your license. Uh, and there are, you know, licenses ranging from 150 to 175 to 200, 250, and then unlimited. And you have to go back and requalify for whatever license you're, you're shooting for. And so I just had to make a run over 200 miles an hour. So the agreement was I'd make a run, be really easy on the throttle, be sure not to spin the wheels, just get it down there, run it three miles and shut it off and coast out, take it back to the pits and take a look at it and see what needed to be done. Well, the thing went 213 miles an hour, right? <laughs> It's like, what? You know, I mean, I wasn't even trying. In the and so I, I got the upgraded license. And so we ended up making a few more runs. And, and it, I think it ran as fast 240 or 250. And then we unfortunately broke a connecting rod. And, uh, and that put the end to our efforts that year. And uh, I think it was a connecting rod or it might have been a clutch or something. Anyway, we couldn't fix the car on the salt. It's hard to work up there anyway. You don't have a shop. You don't have equipment. And 
So we went back and fixed everything, tuned everything up, got a handle. We figured this is it. And for the next two years, 2014 and 15, Bonneville didn't happen. The, the races were rained out both years and salt conditions were unacceptable. It was underwater, essentially. It's a unique place. It can be perfect one day and a storm will come through and you go out to the, and you, you find your trailer in six inches of water. You know, it's just a crazy place. And uh, so we kept tuning on the car and upgrading things here and there. We went back in 2016 and that was the year that uh, I made an easy run and, and got it up to about 240 miles an hour. And now we're getting ready to go to the whip and, and really put this thing on a run. And, and finally it's running and I made the shift. It had a two speed transmission in it. And I, I made the shift to, to high gear and this thing was picking up and hauling buns. And I'm saying to myself, Finally, you know, finally, we're going to go really fast on this run. I can, I mean, you can feel it. You know how fast you're going, you know. And I'm approaching the, the three mile markers, and bang, you bang, the car jumps off of the ground and, and immediately pull the parachutes and pull the fuel shut off and ended up coasting off onto the town road. And it, it had kicked a connecting rod out. So we were done. Uh, and the plan was to go back and rebuild the car. And that was when Mike Cool's Alzheimer's was really kicking in. And that year, 2016 at Bonneville, he was somewhere else mentally. He just, he couldn't remember the tune-up. He couldn't remember what parts were in the car. Uh, we had some real good friends of ours, a guy named Brendan Murray, who's a nostalgia drag racer. Uh, came around. Uh, Enriquez from Hillborn came and did some tuning up on the fuel injection system and whatever. And we were able to make those runs until it kicked the rod out. But it was obvious to me that it was not going to happen again in 2017. So we got back home, agreed to put the car up for sale. Uh, I ended up finding a buyer in Jeff Stillwell from England uh, who bought the car. And then some friends of his Bob Moravas, uh, Bill Schultz, uh, Sparky Perry, some other people. And I dropped by from time to time to add what I could in, in the rebuild. And uh, we all took the car up there in 2019. And he set the class record at 258 miles an hour. And then ever since then has invested, I'm exaggerating now probably, but millions of dollars in rebuilding this car and turning it into an absolute animal. And uh, they're going to, they ran it at uh, El Mirage uh, a while back. They're going to go back in May and run it at El Mirage to get all the bugs out. And then they're going to go to Bonneville for Speed Week. And the objective is exactly the same as what ours was. And that is to set a record over 300 miles an hour. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the car will do that. Are you going to be there? Are you going to head up there for that and watch it or not? That's my plan. Oh, good. That's so I, we're coming up on the end of this. And I, I guess, you know, this, this has mainly been about Carl Olson, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about Mike cool and your relationship with him throughout the years. And I, I know that you guys stayed even after the racing stopped and you went to work at the NHRA, you guys, your relationship continued on closer than ever. So 
what what can you say about I, I know Mike Cool is just as far as a guy like me on the outside, Mike Cool is legend. I mean, he's a legendary figure in drag racing and the engines that he was able to produce and the things that he did. Mike Car Mike Cool was probably the most intuitive and talented engine builder that I ever knew. And that's taking nothing away from the Keith Blacks, Sid Watermans, and Ed Pinks of the world. Mike's concentration was in the area of marine racing engines, drag boat racing, offshore racing. Uh, he had a lot of contacts with all of the marine shops in Southern California, Speed Marine and Orange and whatever. And they sent a lot of work his way. <clears throat> but he was an extremely talented guy that performed mechanical feats that I couldn't even honestly comprehend. And I'll tell you straight up, I'm a driver. You know, there are people like Don Garlitz that build their car, tune their car, and drive their car. And I did a lot of mechanical work. I was always involved in the mechanical work on every car I ever drove, more so with Cool than any of them. Because when you go on the road on tour and it's two people, everybody's got to work their ass off and, and do pretty much everything. And it doesn't take long before, and it didn't take long with Mike and I to, to come to two realizations. The first one was that we were about as different as two people can be from personality-wise, talent-wise, or whatever else. He was a mechanical genius. I'm not, never will be. He tried driving, didn't work out for him. Uh, and we, once we established that I would be the driver and he would be the the mechanic and crew chief, we very quickly figured out over a period of time what he was best at and what I was best at. And once we made that division and assigned those responsibilities, it was never a topic of discussion again. I never messed around and his, you know, he used to say all the time, cool's a driver. I never let him on the other side of the firewall, you know. Well, that's not exactly true, but but there's a lot of truth in it for sure. I mean, he was the engine guy. I did the clutch and the rear end and packed the parachute, drove the car and whatever. We found that because of our enormous differences, that between us, we were able to cover all of the bases. And that by assigning the bases to the person in the team who was best equipped to deal with it, we were pretty successful. The other thing that attracted me to Cool immediately was he never lied to me. You know, I'd race with a lot of people and some people I think feel they have to kind of use a little smoke and mirrors now and then around a driver. Well, don't tell him that because he might, you know, that was never Mike Cool. You know, sometimes Mike Cool could be brutally honest but most of the time he was just honest. In all the years that I raced with Mike and was friends with him, which was over a half a decade, I only caught him lying to me once and it had nothing to do with racing. And unfortunately, I can't tell you what it was. <laughs> Suffice to say, he felt the need for the only time ever 
to tell a lie. And it came back and bit him right in the ass. <laughs> and I never let him forget it. You know? and we'd start in on any kind of negotiation. I say, cool, don't ever lie to me. Like <laughs> okay, yeah. So when you have that level of honesty, where you don't have to wonder what the guy is thinking, and when you don't have to wonder whether he's questioning what you're doing, because he never tried to tell me how to drive the car, and I never tried to tell him what tune-up to put in the engine. We would compare notes. But usually, by the time we had a quick conversation at the end of the shutoff area on the return road, by the time we got back to the pits, there was no conversation because we already knew what had to be done and who had to do it. And it got done. The next thing you know, you're in line for the next round. And it's just, that's just the kind of relationship that we had. And then when you go on tour, we were on tour together for almost nine months. Night and day, 24-7. When you spend that much time with somebody, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to figure out what you don't like about them or what you do like about them. And in our case, we figured out what we liked about each other. And uh, it just it's a relationship like I have never known before or since. And then don't get me wrong. I raced with a lot of good people. And Jack Ewell taught me a lot. And, and Don Bowman was a big help you know, a number of times and became involved in the Bonneville car even. And I've, you know... And I, and I admire and worship those friendships that I've developed, but none of them ever had the depth that my relationship with Mike Cool did, because I don't think anybody was ever that close to being on the same page as we were. Well, and you guys were, I, I, you guys were inducted into the International Drag Racing Hall of Fame as a team. Did, and I mean, either one of you could have been inducted individually, but it seems fitting, and I don't know how you feel about that. Would you have preferred to be inducted separately? or? But it seems fitting that you two will be remembered as a team. I personally would have been devastated had we not been inducted as a team. Because even though we both had done things in drag racing before and after the fast guys, those were the golden years, and, and that relationship to my way of thinking, dictated that when people think about either of us drag racing, they think of Cool and Olsen first and foremost. So when we learned that we were going to be inducted as a team, uh, I didn't hug Mike Cool a lot. I don't know if he ever hugged me willingly, <laughs> but uh, I think that, that when I met him at his shop the night after we got that call, I think we had a long embrace and maybe even a little tear or two. Because it was that important for us to be seen as the team that we were. And uh, I, I, in my mind, you will, it, it's never, ever going to be Mike Cool or Carl Olson. To me, in my mind, it will always be Cool and Olson. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> and well, and you know, it, now that we're on to, to the nostalgia stuff and, and, We've got these great cackle fests that go on, and now Steve Gibbs has started the Nitro Revival. Mike Cool's car is one of the cars that I featured when I did. I, I actually did several videos on it because it's such an important car, and it's such a beautiful car. And, I, and I'm sad that that you weren't. I know you were off deep sea fishing. I'm sad that you weren't there to be able to. I was able to shake your hand and and see you in that car. Eddie did a great job in it, but 
were you, you there's been restorations of cars here uh and you're you you said you've done some restorations of cars too that car were you involved in the restoration of the cool car or was that Not, mike's baby that was mike cool's project 100 percent okay. from the get-go and what have you been involved in as far as restoration goes um I was contacted by some people at SEMA in the late 1980s, um, shortly after I had served, I think, my third and final term on their board of directors. Uh, I had been very deeply involved in the selection of the site for and the building of the SEMA headquarters in Diamond Bar, California, which is SEMA headquarters to this day. And... In 1989, um, construction of the building was nearing completion, and in early 1990, they were going to have the grand opening of the new SEMA office with a big cocktail reception and sit-down dinner and hoopla and whatever. But they were having a problem, and the problem was they had a huge reception area, two-story reception area with a reception desk and a sofa and coffee table and whatever, but there wasn't anything that represented the foundation of SEMA, the core of the high performance industry, which was drag racing back in the 60s and 70s. And and, uh, the SEMA president at that time uh, felt it was really important to make that connection and propose that they hang a dragster on the wall of the reception area of the SEMA office. And a, a really close personal friend of mine named Pete Chaporis, who eventually was the proprietor of SoCal Speed Shop. Um, he was working for SEMA at the time in marketing and events and whatever, and they gave him the responsibility of finding the car to, to hang on the wall in the reception area. So he picked up the phone and called me first, and I said, boy, have I got the car for you. Larry Miner has a rear engine top fuel car that was driven by Gary Beck that set the national record and won the world championship and has been completely restored. It's the original car. And I know it's down at Hemet at Larry Miner's shop. And I'd be willing to bet you anything that he'd be more than happy to have you hang that car on the wall at the SEMA office. And he said, well, would you be so kind as to broker the deal? So I called Larry Miner and I, made the proposal. And he said, well, that sounds great to me. And I have that put that guy in touch with me. So I had Pete Purse contact him. And so they made arrangements to haul the car out of wherever it was, and clean it all up and whatever. And then somebody, and I don't even know who it was, had the bright idea of asking how long the car was. Because <laughs> everybody looks at the, this two-story reception area and, you know, it, it, it looks like the make-believe ballroom, you know, the ceiling is way up there. (laughs) So somebody measured the car and it's about nine inches too long (laughs) to fit on the wall. And rightfully so, in my opinion, Larry Miner was not interested in trying to chop nine inches somewhere out of the car with new body panel. I mean, and why would you do that? You know, the thing is a museum piece. Yep. You know, the last thing we want to do is be cutting it up. So I had to break to Pete Chapuris the fact that our plan isn't going to work and we're running out of time. 
pizza. Oh, God. All right. Well, so anyway, seeing I had some kind of an event down in San Diego at a big fancy hotel. And Pete said, meet me for dinner the night before the event in the dining room at the hotel because I got something I want to propose to you. Oh, well, okay. So a couple of days later, I drove down to San Diego and he said, somebody told me you have an old front engine top fuel car that you were planning to restore. And I went, well, yeah. Um, several years ago, I was attending a nostalgia drag race at uh, LA County Raceway in Palmdale. And I was walking through the pits and I walked by this car and I got to looking at it. And I went, holy crap. That's the Yule Bell and Olson 426 Hemi car. I'd just wow. be willing to bet. So I approached the owner and his wife who were mechanic driver. She was driving the car and it was a typical carbureted Chevrolet with a power glide transmission, you know, like every top fuel car then got converted into an ET bracket car with a carbureted Chevrolet. Uh, and it had necessitated some changes to the body and motor mounts and all of that kind of stuff. But I said, Hey, what are the chances you might ever be interested in selling this car? And he said, well, why do you ask? I said, I'd like to get it and restore it. You know, it's something that I enjoy doing. I love race cars. I particularly love this race car. And he said, well, I, you know, I'm not interested in doing that now, but if I ever, I said, here's my card, here's my home phone number, just do me a favor and make me the first call. He said, oh, okay, fine. You know, he knew who I was and I'd never met the guy. It turns out I should have probably been involved. He had a machine shop and did a lot of race car work and whatever. But anyway, about six months later, Somebody said to me, hey, I hear that guy that owned your own top fuel car is going to sell it to somebody. I, what? I said, yeah, you know, I'm pretty sure that the car's for sale. So I still had the guy's phone number and I called him up and I said, hey, Doug, I thought you were going to, I thought we had a deal. You were going to call me if you were ever interested in selling that car. He said, oh, wow, Jesus Christ, car, I'm so sorry. I thought... He said, somebody approached me and, and offered me a really good deal. On it. And to, I'll be honest with you, I never even thought about it. I wasn't even intending to put the car up for sale, but the guy made me such a good deal. He was going to help fund a rear engine chassis so we could build a new race car. And my wife didn't have to send, sit behind this bomb and whatever. And, and it sounded like a good deal. And so I told the guy I'd think about it. And I said, you didn't make the deal yet, did you? And he said, no. And I said, okay, if you'd be so kind, tell me what he offered. And I'll match it, not even knowing what it is. Oh, wow. And so he told me what it was. And it was a little pricey. But so I bought the roller from him. And at that time, I was involved in numerous other race car restoration projects, midgets and sprint cars mostly, because I'd been on a lot of crews on oval open wheel dirt track cars over the years including dirt champ cars in which we won a, ch a championship in 1989 with USAC and whatever. And I was doing a lot of work for a friend of mine named Junior Kurtz that owned a trunking company out in Ontario and owned a fleet of race cars. And he had a wonderful shop. And I said, can I store this car out here until I finish the project I'm working on at your shop, which is a sprint car restoration? He went, yeah, go ahead. We'll put it on the chain hoist and we'll haul it up in the rafters. And until you're ready to bring it down and work on it. So that's where it was when I had this conversation with Pete Chaporis. And he said, I have authority from SEMA that we will participate in the funding of the restoration of this vehicle if you're willing to commit 
to putting it on display on the wall at the same office. I said, well, how do I walk away from a deal like that? <laughs> he says, we only have one problem. We got 34 days to get it done. Oh, my. I said, what? <laughs> oh. He said, the grand opening of the office is in 34 days. And he said, we're going to have to hang it on the wall at least a day ahead of time. And it's not going to be easy. But I will tell you, we're building the office specifically for that purpose with an I-beam steel behind the wall by the elevator shaft and whatever and studs. And I said, well, okay. So I ended up getting started on the project. We took it out of the rafters and Junior helped me clean it up and whatever and figure out what needed to be done. And it, it needed body work, chassis work. I needed to have an engine. And I didn't need to have an engine that was a running engine because this thing's going to hang on the wall. So I don't want any of the rotating assembly, internal components, rear end gears, clutch. I don't want any of that because I want it to be as light as possible. So when the big earthquake hits, it stays up there <laughs> on the wall. You know? And so I started gathering parts. And I cannot begin to tell you the people that came out of the woodwork to volunteer to help with parts and advice and whatever. Keith Black gave me a set of cylinder heads. Oh. Um, Enderly fuel injection told me where I could find one of the original bug catcher fuel injectors with the side nozzles rather than the plate nozzles, which is what we ran. I wanted to make it externally as perfect as possible. Uh, and I started calling people and all of a sudden they opened their arms and parts were coming and the people at Earl supply company gave me all the hoses and wiring. And I mean, I don't think there was anybody that I asked if they might have something that they didn't immediately just give it to me. I don't think anybody wow. charged me anything for any of that stuff. Wow. And so I took the last two weeks that we had to do the project and I, I, I had Steve Davis do the body work. Uh, and I had Tom Stratton, paint it exactly like it was even with the cerny paint logo on it even though tom stratton was painting it he want, he understood we're making it exactly the way that it was he didn't paint it originally but cerny had passed away so that was out of the question and anyway he, we got the car painted and everything got chromed and plated and anodized and whatever and i took two weeks of vacation from the nhra and spent that entire two weeks probably 20 hours a day putting that car together and ended up getting it together. And uh, we towed it over to the SEMA office the day before the grand opening. And uh, they had hired a couple of scissor lifts and a bunch of other stuff that we had. And uh, Woody Gilmore had built a spine for the back of it with cables attaching in all the right places so that it would hang properly and, uh, and never fall off the wall. And uh, getting it up there was pretty interesting. We put the front wheels right against the wall and then walked the whole car all the way up to the ceiling. <laughs> it was kind of dicey there when, you know, things weren't fastened real well. And But we eventually got it in there and got it bolted to the, to the wall and whatever, and it's been there ever since. Um, the other projects that I were working on at the time was all oval track sprint cars and midgets. And I've done a number of those restorations, including one, that helped me achieve one of my lifelong ambitions. And that was to drive a sprint car at Ascot Park Speedway. I restored a car that was built by Steve Davis and little John Butera and raced very successfully with the California Racing Association for a couple of years. Uh, and then they 
retired that car and built a new one. And it sat around Steve Davis's shop for years. And, and I finally had this urge to do another restoration than the one that I had just completed. And I asked him about it and he sold it to me for next to nothing. And we put an engine together and put it in there. And then for several years until Ascot closed, uh, I never raced it because I wasn't interested in racing it. I just wanted to drive it. And Ascot had a once a month Wednesday night practice night where they prepped the track and anybody could come in for 50 bucks or whatever. You could go make as many laps as you wanted. And uh, every practice session they had for the next two years, I took it down to Ascot and made laps. And then when Ascot closed, I just parked the car for many years until Paris Auto Speedway opened up out in Paris. And they started doing the practice practice nights and I started taking the car out there and I ran it out there for about a year and a half until the engine was getting tired and it was a pretty exotic engine with things like titanium connecting rods and whatever and a, a rebuild would have been economically infeasible or at least ridiculous and uh, I ended up selling the car to the guy who originally drove it a guy named oh, wow. Jeff Haywood who it turns out had always wanted to to have it and establish a, a very successful high performance business in Orange County. And, uh, you know, when I called him and asked him if he'd like to buy the car, he, just, I mean, he fell, fell out of his chair and couldn't get over fast enough to pick it up. And so <laughs> that car's still around, but because the engine re re rebuild was never done, it's, it's just a, a hunk to sit around in somebody's shop now and admire and remember the good old days. But uh, I finally got a chance to whiz around Ascot Park Speedway. And, and after years, decades of watching hundreds, if not thousands of dirt oval track races and wondering what it was like, and in my mind, picturing what it was like, actually doing it and realizing it really wasn't all that much like what I thought it was. <laughs> it was a lot busier than I thought it was. It, it, you know, it, it was just wonderful. And that checked one of the major items off of my bucket list. And, and you know, those those outings I'll never forget. You know, tow out there to Ascot and unload, and get suited up, and push it out there and fire it off and make laps. Yeah, that, that's as much fun as I ever had with the 